I am filling in for Pastor Mark this morning. Um, as always, it, it's a, a bit intimidating when you get in the pulpit, but um, God is faithful, and uh, I know that he will use his word uh, for his purposes this morning. Uh, so this morning, as you see in the bulletin, our verse, or our, our text is going to be Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14. Uh, but as always, before we get into the text, uh, let's pray and ask God to illuminate the scriptures and to open our hearts and our minds. Uh, please bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are in your house this morning because we long to worship you, Father. We recognize that you are holy, that you are perfect, that you know all things, that you are perfect in your wisdom, that you have planned all things from the beginning, uh, that your purpose is absolute and cannot be thwarted. Uh, and Father, we know that as you are holy, you cannot tolerate sin. And for those who do not believe in you, who, know, who have not had their sins removed from them, your wrath is terrible. And hell is a very real place, and it is for all eternity. But Lord, we also know from our verses this morning that you treat your children in a very, very different way. That you are such, such a good father towards us. That you are abundant in your loving kindness, and your grace, and your mercy. That you lavish all good things on us, Father. We, as we come to know more about you, we are astounded. Because we know that you are holy and we are not. And, we, and it's, it almost seems impossible that you could treat us this way, Father. But it is a testimony to your greatness and your goodness, Lord. Uh, Father, help us to, to understand and learn more about you and to use what we learned this morning to increase our depth of worship of you, to make it uh, honoring and glorifying and, and worthy, uh, and that you will accept it, Father, because as your word tells us, we need to worship you with all of our being, Father, and we want to do that this morning. I love you so much, Father, and it's your name that we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, uh, our text is Psalm 103, verses 1 through 14. And, and I chose this passage this morning because I want to talk about the person of God. Uh, to the theology students, this is known as theology proper. It is the study of who is God, who is he, what is he like. If you've been uh, coming to church for any length of time, you've most likely heard verses like Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, the first and greatest commandment. And also Matthew chapter 22, verses 35 through 38. Uh, this is when a, one of the, the experts of the law was talking to Jesus. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him, Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. So we know that we are commanded to love God and that he should be our highest priority. But the question I want us to ask ourselves this morning is, do we know him? Do we know him very well? Now, to be sure, no one knows God perfectly or completely. But I suspect that most Christians, even those who would label themselves as an evangelical Christian, have very little real biblical knowledge of God. And maybe even worse, I suspect that most don't even have the desire to know God. Or at the very least, they're interested in knowing about other things that seem more exciting. How many Christians get more excited about football or fantasy sports on Sunday than they do about going to church to learn about God? Or what's going on in social media? Or politics? Or the news? Or where they're going to be going for lunch after the service? I want to read a part of a book by Randy Alcorn, uh, his book about heaven. Uh, and the chapter, chapter one opens with this contrast. 
Jonathan Edwards, the great Puritan preacher, often spoke of heaven. He said, becomes us to spend this life only as a journey toward heaven, to which we should subordinate all other concerns of life. Why should we labor for or set our hearts on anything else but that which is our proper end and true happiness? In his early 20s, Pastor Alcorn continued, Edwards composed a set of life resolutions. One read, resolved, to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Some may think it odd and inappropriate that Edwards was so committed to pursuing happiness for himself in heaven. But the French scientist and Christian Blaise Pascal was right when he said, All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. And if we seek happiness, why not do as Edwards did and seek it where it can actually be found, in the person of Jesus and in the place called heaven? Tragically, however, most people do not find their joy in Christ, in God, in heaven. In fact, many people find no joy at all when they think about heaven. A pastor once confessed to me, whenever I think about heaven, it makes me depressed. I'd rather just cease to exist when I die. Why, I asked. He answered, I can't stand the thought of that endless tedium. To float around in the clouds with nothing to do but strum a harp, it's all so terribly boring. Heaven doesn't sound much better than hell. I'd rather be annihilated than to spend eternity in a place like that. End quote. Now, I don't know about you, but my heart breaks when I read that sentiment about heaven. If we understand that heaven is where we will get to worship God and enjoy him forever, then what could possibly cause someone, a pastor no less, to have that kind of attitude and outlook? It is certainly possible or probable that he doesn't have a biblical understanding of heaven, but I think that what is also a very likely cause of this type of attitude is that the pastor didn't really know God, and quite possibly that the pastor isn't really saved. So it's this point I want to make this morning, beloved. Our true and deep knowledge of God is essential to authentic and God-pleasing worship, because without it, our worship is shallow and it lacks a genuine quality. As I mentioned, we all know that the first commandment is to love God. But you cannot love or worship a God that you do not know. So again, it is for this reason that I chose Psalm 103 for our passage of study this morning. Now, there are many excellent psalms that have a great deal to reveal about God, his character, and his nature. But in my humble opinion, Psalm 103 is among the best of these. And as we'll see shortly, Psalm 103 is almost entirely an exaltation of God based upon the psalmist, that'd be David, and his reflection of God's character. It is a command to worship God, and then 18 verses about the character and nature of God, and then bookended by another command. So as we get into Psalm 103, a couple introductory comments. Most, that is like the overwhelming majority of commentators, are in agreement that David is the author. And that if that is correct, and we believe it is, that he wrote Psalm 103 near the end of his life. And we know this because the writing style of the author of Psalm 103 matches almost exactly other psalms that we know were written by David. And then the depth of the author's knowledge of God would indicate an advanced age, whereby the author had most of a lifetime of experience walking with God. So again, the purpose of the psalm here is to focus on God and his character, his works, his blessings, and his attributes, and to call those to remembrance. 
The focus on God is intended by David to drive our worship and praise of God. It is to give a reason for the command to worship God. It's almost as if the very first two verses are commands by, by David, the psalmist, to worship the Lord. If you were to ask David, David, why should we do this? He gives his answer in the next 18 verses. The more we understand the character of God, the more we will earnestly desire to praise him. And if you are a Christian, I argue that your driving need is going to be to worship God. The more you learn about him, the more you're going to feel the need to do that. And so let's read our, the, the verses this morning. Psalm 103, verse 1 through 14. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits, who pardons all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion, who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. The Lord performs righteous deeds and judgments for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. And praise God for his word. So I want to get, get into the text, and I want to start combing through it. And we're going to just take it linearly. So we're going to start with verses 1 and 2. I want to examine the, the, the first bullet point. Well, actually, let me back up. For those of you that are taking notes and doing an outline this morning, I just want to assist you. The three main points that I'm going to have this morning are, number one, the command to worship the Lord. Number two, the benefits of the Lord. And number three, the characteristics of the Lord. So let, let's, again, turn now to verse number 1. We see here, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. So a couple observations that we need to to understand to to get the full, I guess, uh, the thrust of this command. Bless here does not mean its most common meaning of to make holy or to ask for divine favor. If you were to look this word up in the dictionary, you would find those two, probably number one and two in in the definitions. While these are the usual meanings when we speak in the context of blessing another person, this is not what is commanded here. So, you know, obviously, you know, in our prayers, we often will tr- we'll pray for other people. We'll ask the Lord to bless them, to give them strength, to give them healing, um, divine favor. But when we're blessing God, we cannot make him holy because he is already perfect in holiness. And it doesn't make sense to ask God to make himself more holy. That can't be possible either. We are also not asking God to put divine favor upon himself because he is already perfect and is completely satisfied within himself, within the Trinity. So these don't make sense. So what, what's, what's going on here? So the Hebrew term for this is baruch. It means to bless. It means to worship, to glorify, to praise, or to adore. And I really like that last one because, I mean, that's, that's another... I guess it's, a, it's another way to say worship. I, I, I get concerned that sometimes... 
we use worship so frequently that it seems to lose its meaning. So it means to glorify God, to adore God for who he is. And then you also see, bless the Lord. So in your Bible, it's probably capitalized. And what that means to convey is the title for the Lord is Yahweh. It's God's covenant name which he revealed to Israel. The I am who I am. To the Israelite, this would have brought to mind a remembrance of all of his perfections and his acts of deliverance. And then you see, in all that was in within me, bless his holy name. So again, all that is within me, this is the totality of our being. The command here is a full commitment to the act of giving thanks. The worship of God is the highest priority, and no distractions are permitted. It's not to be done half-heartedly or insincerely. And so then when you go to verse number two, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget none of his benefits. So the first part, it's a repetition of verse one. Whenever you see a command or something repeated, particularly in the Old Testament, this is an, an act of emphasis by the author. It's, hey, don't miss this. This is important. We even do this, you know, just in, in how we educate children. It's rep- repetition, repetition. The more you do it, the more it enforces it, and the more it conveys that, that it's important. And so, you know, again, it's a command. It's non-negotiable. And then finally, the second half of verse number two, and forget none of his benefits. So again, this is a command. Stated another way, it's a command to remember the blessings that the Lord gives. This includes first knowing what the blessings are in the first place, which is why David is about to cover them, verses three through five. But before I move on from this, why, why do you think that we are commanded to remember the blessings of the Lord? Well, in the context here, I argue that it's, this is necessary for praise. Well, once again, the point of this psalm is because it is driving our worship to God. And so, as you remember the good things God has done in the Bible and even in our own lives, this causes you to worship God more and more deeply. And that's, that's what we're going for here. So then we turn to the benefits of the Lord. This is the, the second main point of the outline, verses 3 through 5. David now shifts listing and remembering the Lord's benefits. Um, And what I actually want want you to do is I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, because I want to show you where David gets this from. It's relating back to Exodus 34. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Uh, I'll I'll quickly set the context. Uh, Exodus chapter 34, verses 1 through 10, this takes place right after... Uh, if you know the story in, in the Old Testament about when God gives the, the Ten Commandments the first time, and then when Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive them, he then comes back and he witnesses the golden calf. Apparently the Israelites got bored and, you know, while he was up there and they decided to make an idol out of gold. And in, in Moses' wrath, he smashes the first set of the Ten Commandments. So here, this is the Lord giving the, the, the second, you know, basically another copy of the Ten Commandments to Moses. So I'll start here at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, Cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No man is to come up with you, nor let any... Even the, nor let any man, or, I'm sorry, nor let any man be seen anywhere on the mountain. Even the flocks and the herds may not graze in front of that mountain. So he cut out two stone tablets like the former ones, and Moses rose up early in the morning and went up to Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. 
And he took two stone tablets in his hand. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished visiting the, the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. He said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession. Then God said, Behold, I am going to make a covenant before all your people, I will perform miracles which have not been produced in all the earth, nor among any of the nations, and all the people among whom you live with will see the workings of the Lord, for it is a fearful thing that I'm going to perform with you. So the reason I wanted to, to bring up this passage is because David is drawing the attributes of God from verses 6 and 7. I mean, you know, the Lord, this is what the Lord himself revealed to Moses. And this is really, it's, it's a reaffirmation by God of the Mosaic Covenant. And so David is thinking back to Exodus 34, and he's reflecting and remembering the Lord's character, and it's driving his worship of God in this psalm. So let's go, turn back to Psalm 103. We're going to go through verses 3 through 5. The first subpoint here is that God forgives sins. He pardons all your iniquities. First half of verse 3. God gives complete and total forgiveness for our sins against him. Our debt to him is canceled, and he remembers them no more. It is significant that forgiveness is mentioned first because, as Charles Spurgeon noted in his commentary on Psalm 103, quote, forgiveness is, is first in the order of our spiritual experience, and in some respects first in value. The pardon granted is a present one, forgiveth. It is continual. For he still forgiveth, it is divine, for God gives it, it is far-reaching, for it removes all our sin, end quote. In other words, there is a sense that this is first in value and probably recorded first by David because a relationship with God would be impossible if God had not forgiven us and if he did not keep on forgiving us. Since God is perfect in holiness... The sinful nature of man would ordinarily prevent a relationship entirely. God is holy, we are not. Holiness cannot look upon unholiness. So if God did not provide a way for reconciliation to him, a single sin would sever the relationship completely if God was not gracious and faithful to then also continually forgive us. So God saves us initially when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, and then that's another reason why we are commanded to continually go to him and continue to ask for forgiveness because there's the importance to have our sin nature forgiven and then as we continue to commit sins through our lives, we need to have those forgiven as well. Otherwise, it distorts and and really hinders the relationship. And I also wanted us to just reflect on the fact that the very fact that we have a relationship to God at all is a tremendous blessing and privilege. Going now to the second part of verse 3. God is a healer of diseases. The text says, God who heals all your diseases. So God is indeed a healer. 
And while its meaning seems pretty clear and straightforward, I've noticed that many of the commentators seem a little bit all over the place in trying to really flesh out and kind of assist with the application of this verse. So I think to, to make this second half of verse 3 more clear, it's helpful to first understand what this verse does not mean. There are many who subscribe to what is called the healing and the atonement, uh, meaning that if we have been saved from sin by Christ, they reason, we have been healed or have a right to be healed of any physical afflictions as well. So you may be familiar with this view because of the, the so-called word of faith movement. It includes certain uh, speakers such as Benny Hinn, uh, Kenneth and Gloria Copeland, and many others. But it's important to, to point out that this is inaccurate. It's bad theology. It is a fact that believers do get sick. Many Bible passages teach that God has his purpose in sickness. Sickness is part of the sinful and fallen world. So if you get sick, it doesn't mean that you aren't saved or that you don't have enough faith. This passage should not be understood as God's unconditional promise that you can't or won't ever get sick or have any sort of physical ailments or, or anything like that. So then, if, if, if that's not what this passage does not mean, then what does it mean? So, I mean... This doesn't mean that God is always going to keep you healthy. So, but the text, all, but it specifies that he heals all your diseases. So what, what does this mean? Well, it, it is true. God is a healer, and he does heal all of our diseases, physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually, every disease that is possible. But the text does not specify the timing as to when that's going to happen. It's not, I mean, it's not necessarily going to happen immediately or even within our lifetime. There are many people, uh, you know, that have different handicaps and different limitations. They, they may never see healing in this lifetime. But what God is promising is that, uh, that the complete and total healing will happen in heaven, so after the resurrection. So God will heal us there. Uh, turning to verse 4. So God who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. So again, God, in the first half of verse 4, he, is, he proclaims himself as our redeemer. To redeem means to buy back or to recover. And the pit here is an Old Testament reference to hell. So then this verse is speaking of the fact that God saves us to eternal life. He has bought us back from the marketplace of sin. I mean, I think it's easy to gloss over this. God is our redeemer. We, we, he makes it possible for us to have a relationship with him. And then in the second half of verse 4, who crowns you with loving kindness and compassion. I, I love the descriptive text here, crowns. So, so picture the imagery of God literally bestowing with loving kindness and compassion on us as one would place a crown upon a king's head. I want to also kind of define here when it, loving kindness and compassion. Uh, particularly loving kindness, just because it's used throughout Psalm 103. The, the Hebrew word for loving kindness is hesed. It means faithfulness, steadfast love, the assurance of the constancy of God's fidelity towards his own. When the word is used, it is conveying a strongly relational aspect. So in other words, the key concept here is that when God interacts with his people, he does so with a true, unconditional, genuine love that is steadfast. It's constantly his constancy. It's its constancy is assured because God it, because God is eternal, and that is one of His characteristics. That is His nature. And then compassion. It means a deep sympathy, 
coupled with a desire to alleviate the suffering. So again, the picture is that God is lavishing his steadfast love that cannot fail and his compassion upon us. God really looks down and he sees us in our desperate condition and his heart breaks for you. And so in God's providence, he decided to reach out and save you. That, that is the picture if you are one of God's children. Again, quoting Spurgeon in his commentary, Our Lord does nothing by halves. He will not stay his hand till he has gone to the uttermost with his people. Cleansing, healing, redemption are not enough. He must needs make them kings and crown them. End quote. Moving along to verse 5. God identifies himself as one who satisfies your years with good things, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. God is the only one who can truly satisfy us. He satisfies the soul and he revives us throughout our lives. And when it talks about your years, the Hebrew text here translates to your ornament. That is, Bible scholars have understood that this is talking about oneself, or more specifically, the soul. God is the one who makes us alive and sustains us. So I, there is a sense that, you know, we know that God is good and he gives all good things. And so there is a sense where this is talking about like a material blessing, but that is more of a general concept. Uh, I mean, God definitely does give us all good things. It, he gives that in different amounts to different people. There are some believers who live in very destitute circumstances, that they may not have many physical or tangible blessings that they can speak of. But what this is more talking about is, this is the, the blessing that God gives to your soul, that he makes you alive, that he gives you life. Uh, it's the idea that God satisfies our soul and renews us. As the deer pants for the water, so my soul pants after you, O God. That was another psalm that David wrote. And then in the second half, you see that, so that your youth is renewed like the eagle. This is David using the imagery of an, of an eagle. If you've ever seen uh, like, uh, like a bald eagle out in the wild, uh, you know, they're majestic creatures, and they're, they're kind of the picture of, of vigor. And so that's, that's the idea that what David is trying to convey is that when you go to the Lord and you seek renewal of your soul, he gives it to you so that you are refreshed, you are invigorated as part of that process. And then turning here to, to verses 6 through 14, so these, David, he goes through, so having covered the benefits of the Lord, he then looks and kind of covers God's other characteristics. And I've identified at least 11 of them, and I want to also handle them one by one. First half of verse 6, God performs righteous deeds. God is good, and he does good. It is important for us to remember this when we question God or when it seems like he's not doing what we want when we want him to. It seems like it's one of Satan's most favorite tactics is he likes to subtly communicate things about God that are not true. And if he can get us to believe them, then it can be disastrous for our walk because Satan likes to, to, to imply that, oh, if God was good, he would give you X. Or if God really knew you, he'd give it to you now because you really need it or you really deserve it. But, but God is the one who performs righteous deeds. He cannot do evil, and his timing is also perfect. Second part of verse 6, he gives justice to the oppressed. As David most likely wrote this psalm later in life, uh, he had a great deal of experience of witnessing God's deliverance and seeing God's justice done to his enemies. You can read about David's life in First and Second Samuel. David had a rough time. When he was running from Saul, I mean, he was constantly being persecuted, and he was wrongfully oppressed. 
And, and David got to see many aspects of God's protection and deliverance throughout his lifetime. But God also, he doesn't always deal out his justice to our oppressors right away. Uh, there's no doubt that he will do so, but we, we can't necessarily bank on that it will be in our lifetime or necessarily when we want it to. The lesson is that we are to be patient when we are persecuted and injured wrongfully, having confidence that it is God who is our avenger. We are not to avenge ourselves. Verse 7, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. God revealed himself to Moses and his people. If you remember in Exodus, the burning bush, the parting of the Red Sea, the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke, the giving of the Ten Commandments, and on down. Those are just a few of the ways that God revealed himself to Moses and the Israelites. And this was an act of mercy just in the very act of God revealing himself because we could, not know God, we could not know God otherwise. We can't know God unless he reveals himself to us. So this, again, just highlights God's merciful nature. And then in verse 8, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness. Uh, I, I, we've kind of gone over some of the terms already, but it's important that we don't gloss over them or rush by them. God is compassionate. He is gracious. Gracious meaning that he gives us good things when we do not deserve them and we we did not earn them. That is the entire basis of our relationship with God. It is unmerited favor. God is slow to anger. It's the idea that you can provoke God over and over and over and over and God will not become angry easily. That's just one of the many benefits we have as one of his children but again, that's not, that's not a license to sin, but it is, it is just a, it's an aspect of, of God's mercy. And then again, he's abounding in, there's that word loving kindness again, steadfast love. And now in verse 9, David kind of pivots a little bit. He will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. So this is a little bit of a break in the logical flow of the passage. So far, David has been reciting what we would call comforting characteristics of God, but he needs to remind us that God is indeed holy. And so he cannot completely turn away from sin. He will not ignore it forever. So it's, it's important to, to keep a balanced view of God. It is true that we have many privileges in God, but God is, it, at the end of the day, he is holy. But what a benefit for those of us who have been saved by God. The everlasting and unappeasable wrath of God, it rests on those who don't believe in him, but God tenderly pardons his own children. He treats them so very differently. So again, not to put too fine a point on it, there will be a final day of accountability at the great white throne for all those whose sins have not been forgiven because God is holy. Verse 10, he has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Do you know that God does not, if you are saved, if you know Jesus Christ is your Savior, God does not deal with you according to your sins, because he has covered them. What a, what a, great, what a great comfort that is, because I don't know about you, but I sin against God all the time, every day, for most of the day. And can you imagine how God, what, how God would be treating us if he didn't forget your sins or if he kept all of that in remembrance? It would quickly get to a point where I would be afraid to approach him. But that is not how God treats us. He does not deal with us according to our sins by his great mercy. 
Nor has he rewarded us according to our iniquities. Again, another way of saying it. You, we, have such a, we have such a benefit with God because he is so gracious to us. And in verses 11 through 13, David again wants to emphasize um, God's loving kindness, his forgiveness of sin, and his compassion. And so he uses illustrations to highlight the depth and the richness of this. So in verse 11, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his loving kindness towards those who fear him. So we know what loving kindness means. So, But look at the analogy there. As high as the heavens are above the earth. I would imagine most of us have probably flown on an airplane at some time. Probably some of us more than others. I was on a plane trip not too long ago. I like getting the window seat because I like to look down. I don't know why. If you have vertigo, it might seem silly. But I, I like looking out of the window and just kind of seeing God's creation underneath me. And when you really get high up, when you're at 30, 35,000 feet, that's a long way down. <laughs> and so, the, again, the imagery here, as high as the heavens are above the earth, how high is that? Really, 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 really far. Really high, really deep. It is That's just an analogy for the depth of God's love towards you. And then again, verse 12, talking about his forgiveness of sin. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. How far away is the east from the west? Completely. They're opposites. It's 180 degrees. The idea is that he has completely removed our transgressions from us. What that means is this is the legal weight of sin. The penalty has been completely removed because it's a debt paid in full. And then verse, four, or then verse 13, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. I neglected this from, from verse 11. I'll cover it here. Where it's talking about those who fear them. So these are conditions. They are a condition precedent. This is how God acts towards those who fear him. And fear means a reverential awe or respect because we appreciate God's holiness and how severely he will ordinarily deal with sin. It's not necessarily like a fear you get when you watch a horror film or if you're really scared. It's not like that you're cowering in fear, but it's more of a, a, a feeling that you would get if you walk into a courtroom and stand in front of a judge. I don't know if anyone's ever had jury duty or been in a courtroom, but, but that is the sense. That, that's, why the, that's why the bench is set up the way that it is, because you're, when you go in that courtroom, you're not supposed to have just a blasé view of the judge. You can't act or do whatever you want in front of the judge. That would be silly. Bad things will happen to you. And it's that same concept when we're talking about the reverential fear and awe of God. It, there's a gravity to it. There's a seriousness to it. When you come into God's presence... You can't come in haphazardly. There's an there's a element of preparation that you need to do to your soul before you do that. And so that's, that's what's talking about. The Lord who will have compassion on people who have that view and approach towards him. And the first half of verse 13, just as a father has compassion on his children. I know not all of us have, maybe some of you have not had good earthly fathers. But God is a, a great father. He is the perfect father. And so, for those fathers of you out there, how do you treat your children when they mess up? Are you overly harsh with your children, or do you understand that they're children? I mean, there's a gentleness, there's an understanding that you try to have 
when you deal with your kids, when you try to discipline your kids. Uh, you give them good things even though they don't deserve it. It's that same way that God acts towards his children, that he is a good father. And then finally, the last verse I want to cover this morning is verse 14. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. Isn't this a comfort? I mean, I am routinely reminded on just how short I fall because we know that we are commanded to be holy as God is holy. I don't live up to that. I rarely, if ever, live up to that. And it's amazing, I mean, it's such a comfort just how often that I, I can always fall back into the grace of God. Lord, you, that you know my frame, you know my vulnerabilities, you know how I am prone to get distracted by the world, to, to not be bold for you, to sin against you. And God knows all that. He, he takes it into account. He, he has a realistic expectation of you. He knows that we are very frail and we are mortal and our lives are, our days are numbered. We don't have the same eternal perspective that God does. Um, so, that, I mean, that, that's just been, <laughs> that, is, that was probably one of my favorite verses in preparing the sermon. That's such a comfort to me. Um, and that he understands us perfectly and he sympathizes with our weakness. And so that I want to, as I want to kind of draw the sermon to a close, I, I will simply reiterate that my goal this morning was to provoke all of us to a greater and a deeper understanding of God, and more than that, just a, a desire to know him. Like I said, I think it is so easy to get distracted by the world, to let other things creep in and, and occupy the first place in our hearts, which is tragic because they are, those are idols. The, the tragic thing about an idol is that it cannot satisfy you. Only God can satisfy you. And, and really, I mean, you're, you're almost costing yourself. When you, when you choose to do other things than, than study the Lord and go to him in prayer, you are really costing yourself joy and satisfaction because whatever you look to replace God with is not going to satisfy you. So as we've learned more about God this morning, my, my hope is that I have helped you realize and understand how great and awesome he is and how blessed you are if you are saved and, and if you make it your aim to know God more and more deeply. If you have never been very passionate about trying to learn about God or maybe if you've hit a season in your life where you find that your heart has grown cold towards God, maybe you just haven't been very good in spending time in, in your Bible and praying, um, I challenge you this morning to resolve, to desire to know him. Put the time in. Seek him with all your heart. Um, your prayer time will be so much more rich and rewarding the more you learn about God and the more you understand him so you can praise him for being who he is. Um, and so I'm, I'm going to close my sermon this morning, but, but join me now as I offer up our praise and thanks to God, and then I'll dismiss us. Heavenly Father, I am altogether unworthy to stand in your pulpit. I am an unclean man with unclean lips, Father. Uh, but it is, it's been my prayer that, that you will use the words I've spoken this morning to convey something of yourself to your people, Father. Give us a, a greater desire to know you, and let this transform our worship of you and, and just how we approach life and how we live our lives, Father. Uh, as we go our separate ways this morning, just help us to be more steadfast in our walk of you, Father. Give us boldness to reach out to those around us, to communicate your greatness to them, Father. Um, you are so great to me, Lord. You are abundant in your kindness and your mercy and your grace. It is there every morning, Father, and I, I so do appreciate that and need that, Father. 
Uh, we love you, Lord, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.